Wonderful. Well, good to see you all this afternoon. And uh, we are continuing our study of Matthew's gospel. We are in chapter 26, so we are coming to the conclusion of this gospel, but we are taking a look at the most significant events that Matthew's going to describe, the most significant events in his narrative, and indeed the most significant events in all of history. So Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 17, we're going to continue our study, just finish up what we began to look at last week, and that is Jesus in the upper room with his disciples, the institution of what we call the Lord's Supper, that last Passover meal that Jesus enjoyed with the disciples, and the last bit of teaching that he gave prior to his arrest. And then when we finish with that, we're going to go into uh, that time that Jesus spent with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the events that took place there, in particular, the prayers that Jesus offered there uh, for himself as he prepared to go to the cross. So if you have your Bibles, open them please to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to begin reading at verse 17, but before we do, let's have a word of prayer and ask the Lord to come and grace us with his presence. Gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. So Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to one another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him that he had never been born. Jesus, who would Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. So last week when we began to study these events, and in particular the institution of the Lord's Supper, we said that unfortunately over the centuries what was intended to be a great gift to the church has nevertheless become a source of some controversy. And not only a source of controversy, but sadly a source of division among Christians. Uh, we said that there have been four views of Holy Communion that have arisen in the Western church over the centuries since about the time of the 16th century. The first view being transubstantiation, which we designated as the Roman Catholic perspective, uh, the belief that in the celebration of the Mass, the bread and the wine are literally transformed into the body and blood of Christ. Uh, the guise of bread and wine remains the same, but the substance uh, is absolutely transformed, and this is a great miracle. We said there was another view, and that was a tempered perspective on this by Martin Luther, what is known as consubstantiation, the view that is commonly held by most Lutherans today, and that is the idea that Jesus is indeed physically present somehow in the communion, but the bread and the wine remain the same. Instead, what happens is that the flesh and blood of Christ are united in some mysterious way to the elements of bread and wine. We said there is a third view, which is commonly the view of some Protestants and many Baptists, and that is the memorial view, that when Jesus said, take and eat this in remembrance, that is precisely what he meant. It is a memorial and nothing more. And as we partake of the bread and the wine, we remember what Christ has done for us. But there is no mysterious presence of the Lord in the elements. 
And we said the fourth view is the view of most people coming out of the Reformed tradition, and I would say the dominant view historically within Anglicanism, and that is the real presence view, the belief that Jesus is indeed truly present in the communion when his people receive it by faith, but it is a spiritual rather than a physical presence. But it is nevertheless a presence. It is not a mere memorial. Paul says that there were some, uh, particularly in the church in Corinth, who were eating of the sacrament, partaking of the sacrament, and dying as a consequence because they were receiving it unworthily. And we noted that somebody doesn't just get sick or die because they're eating a symbol. So we said these are the four views, but we came to the conclusion at the end of class last time that C.S. Lewis probably got it right. That as important as these subjects are, they shouldn't be a, a, a situation in which they cause division in the life of the church. They shouldn't be a source of contention in the way that they are. Lewis said, Jesus said, take and eat, not take and understand. And that's probably the best approach for us. Uh, the sacrament was given not to be a source of controversy, but rather to be a source of comfort. Uh, it's interesting, in Luke's version of this and in 1 Corinthians, um, he uses a particular, Jesus uses a particular Greek word when he says, take and eat this in remembrance or in memory of me. And the Greek word that he uses there is anamnesis. All right, it's a big Greek word, anamnesis. And it can be translated as remembrance or in memory of, and that's why it is. But it means more than just remembering a past event. It means a remembrance that is almost supernatural in the sense that we find ourselves transported to the time and the event. It's almost as if the past event is transported us to such a place that we are actually experiencing it all over again. Uh, the best way I can describe what I think anamnesis is and what is meant by it in the New Testament uh, is to think of a photo album. Uh, when my family and I were packing up our house in Beaufort and preparing to move to Charleston, and we had a lot of stuff, uh, probably more stuff than we need, and we were doing uh, the great purge that you often do before you begin to move, um, we were going through drawers and so forth, and I came across an old photo album. You know, most people don't take photos today. Well, they take photos, but everything's stored on your cell phone. So many people don't have film that gets developed necessarily. I don't even think that professional photographers do that anymore. Everything's on a memory card, it seems. Um, but you remember those days when you would take a photograph and you would get it developed uh, at the CVS or at Walgreens, and then you would put it in a photo album. And that's uh, what we had done in the past with our children. And I came across an old photo album. And as I was flipping through the pages and looking at those pictures, and looking at the people, some of whom were not even alive again, it was as though I was literally transported. I was reliving some of those events. It wasn't as though I was just looking at a memory. It was as though I was experiencing the situation, the event, the circumstances all over again. Now, if you've ever had that kind of an experience where you're cleaning out a drawer and you come across pictures of your children, when they were babies or when they were little kids and you begin to look through them, it's almost as though, as I said, you're transported. You can remember the event. It's almost as though you're reliving it all over again. That is what is meant by anamnesis. And that's really what Jesus means when he says, do this in remembrance. He was giving us a token. He was giving us something that would allow us to relive the events all over again. They were commonplace things. They were bread and they were wine. But nevertheless, every time we break that bread and every time we drink that wine, we, in a sense, are transported to that place by faith where we do indeed feed on Christ and receive the benefits of his atoning sacrifice. So that's what Jesus means. It is more than just a bare and naked sign. It is a true and lively experience. Peter had this kind of an experience. He describes it in his second letter. Uh, one of the most powerful events for the, for the Apostle Peter in terms of his relationship with Jesus Christ was the, the time when Jesus took him and two other disciples and they went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
Now, when Peter wrote that second epistle, he was toward the close of his life. Uh, he was facing the prospect of martyrdom. He knew that time was running out for him, and he needed courage, and he needed strength. Peter was an extraordinary individual. We know that he had several moments of weakness over the course of his life and his ministry, and as he's coming to the close of his life, and he's facing the prospect of death, perhaps in prison. When Peter is facing trials and difficulties and, and temptation, he harks back to that moment on the mountain when he beheld Christ, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah, but at the same time, he experiences the glory, the majesty, the Shekinah glory of God, and it's from that that he regains strength. So as he hearkens back to that event and to the memory of that event with Jesus shining in resplendent glory, Peter gains strength. It's almost as though he's transported in time back to that event, and he relives the whole thing all over again. That is really what Holy Communion is designed to do to us. That is what the sacraments are meant to do. The prayer book defines a sacrament as an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. Uh, something very similar to the bread and the wine that Jesus gives us is a wedding ring, a wedding band. For those of you who wear wedding bands, what is that wedding band there to do? It is there to remind us, to transport us to that place where we remember and indeed relive the vows that we made. So the communion service was intended not to be a source of controversy, although it's become that, but rather to be a source of comfort and encouragement to us as Christian people, especially in times of difficulty. I think that's one of the reasons why it's so important for us to get back to having communion on Sunday. It's because we need that. It is a source of strengthening to us. It is a constant reminder of what Christ has done for us. So is it a source of comfort? but it is also intended to be a source of instruction. When Jesus took the bread and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, do this in memory of me, when he took the cup and he offered it up and he said, drink this in remembrance of me, he was teaching them a number of things about his sacrifice. And I would suggest to us that rather than focusing on the controversial elements what actually is taking place in the service of Holy Communion? Is Christ physically present or spiritually present or whether we're just doing this in memory? What I would suggest we do when we take that bread and drink that wine is that we remember what it's meant to teach us about Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. So there is a sense in which Holy Communion, yes, it's a blessing to us and we take it. There's a mysterious element to it, but it's also intended for our instruction to teach us something. You've all heard the expression, a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, that's what communion is supposed to be. Every time that bread is broken, it is a reminder to us of Christ's broken blood, body. Every time we pour out that wine, it is a reminder to us of Christ's shed blood and what these things accomplished on our behalf. I want to suggest to you that in the service of Holy Communion, in the Last Supper, as Jesus instituted it and gave it to his disciples, there are five very important doctrines that are taught. So you might want to jot these down. The first is the doctrine of vicarious atonement. Now, we're going to skip around a little bit in the New Testament, but I'm going to expand on these passages. But keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 26 and turn toward the end of the New Testament to the first epistle of John. Uh, you'll recall that John wrote four books in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, the fourth gospel, but he also wrote three epistles, and then he wrote the book of Revelation. So really, he wrote, you know, five books. But turn to 1 John. It's toward the end of the New Testament. 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. These words should be somewhat familiar to you because they are part of the comfortable words which we say every Sunday after the confession of sin. After the absolution, the priest will stand up and say the words that are intended to comfort us and encourage us and assure us of God's pardon and forgiveness. 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, 
and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, the Book of Common says, and he is the sacrifice for our sins, but this is the proper term right here. The old 1928 prayer book got it right. The word is propitiation. Now, the reason why in many modern translations this word is taken away is because it doesn't mean much to us, but it's a very important word. The word propitiation literally means to turn aside wrath. That's what the word propitiation means, to turn aside wrath. John is saying that if anyone sins, we have an advocate. We have one who speaks on our behalf to the Father, and that is Jesus Christ, who is righteous, who is perfect. He is the propitiation. That means Jesus is the one who turns aside the wrath of God from us. Now, I know whenever we hear that word wrath, um, it makes people cringe, because when we think of a wrathful God, it gives us the impression that God is somehow angry, uh, that God is somehow not in control. When we think of a wrathful person, we think of somebody who just flies off the handle. That's not the image here at all. The best way I can describe the wrath of God, and you've heard me say this perhaps on other occasions, is to say the wrath of God is an aspect of his holiness that is very similar to an allergic reaction. Um, my second son, Jackson, uh, when he was young, was allergic to eggs. Um, he's outgrown that allergy uh, since he's become an adult, but when he was young, for whatever reason, he was allergic to eggs, and it didn't matter what we gave him. You could give him egg beaters, you can give him just the, the yolks or just the whites, it made no difference. If those, any, if the yolk, if anything, any, any egg just touched his lips, he immediately broke out in hives, immediately. Now, there was nothing that he could do about that. He, he wasn't thinking about it, it wasn't a conscious decision. It wasn't simply the fact that he didn't like the eggs, he didn't mind the taste of the eggs. It was just that his body, there was something in his body that resisted it. And there is a sense in which God cannot abide by sin. Whenever he comes into contact with it, his wrath is enraged. You'll recall that in the Old Testament, whenever the high priest went into the Holy of Holies to make sacrifice, to make atonement for the people, he had to enter that most sacred part of the temple with a rope tied around his ankle. Because if his heart was not right with the Lord, if there was some impurity, some sin in his life, he would come into the presence of God in the presence of the Holy One of Israel, and God's wrath would be enraged, and he would be struck down. And no one else, of course, could go in to get him, so they had to reel him out like a great fish. So we need to understand that the wrath of God is an aspect of God's holiness. It's part of what it means to be a just God. And what John is telling us is that Jesus Christ becomes the one who turns aside God's wrath from us. He makes the payment for your sin and mine that you and I might not come under the judgment of God. Now, if you read Romans chapter 1, Paul makes it very clear. Mankind is under the judgment of God. We are under the wrath of God. He says the wrath of God is revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth. And John says that in the person of Jesus Christ, in his shed blood, the wrath of God is turned aside. It's like a locomotive coming down the track, and somebody stands in your place or steps in front of a firing squad in your place and takes the punishment that you deserve, thereby turning aside the wrath of God. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I always say this is really the gospel in a nutshell. Some people will say, well, the gospel in a nutshell is John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. And certainly that is true. But in terms of the gospel and what Christ accomplished on the cross, 1 Corinthians really sums it up well. Paul writes, for God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now think about that. God the Father made him who knew no sin, that is Jesus Christ, to be sin. 
on the cross, all of the transgressions, all of the sins of all humanity, past, present, and future, were heaped upon Christ. There is a sense in which Jesus became sin, the sin of the world. Everything wicked and foul and evil was heaped upon him. This is why the Father turned aside his face and could not even look at the Son. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we, by his death, turning aside the wrath of God, might make us righteous. My friends, that is the heart of the Christian gospel. The cross is the heart of it all. There is a reason why you come into a Christian church, and the symbol that you see first and foremost normally is the cross. That's why the cross is front and center at St. Philip's. It's because there our salvation was procured. There, God's justice and God's mercy kissed each other on the hill of Calvary. And that's the first thing that is taught by the Lord's Supper. Jesus' body broken on our behalf. The punishment that we deserved, Jesus Christ took. It should have been our body broken. It should have been our blood shed. For the wages of sin is death, and we are the sinners. But God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And righteousness, of course, doesn't simply mean purity of character. It means be brought into a right relationship. So that's the first thing Holy Communion is intended to teach us. The second thing it is meant to teach us is that a new covenant has been established. A new covenant has been established. Go back now to Matthew chapter 26. Let me go ahead and read through these verses again, beginning at verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Sometimes the word covenant is translated as testament. That's how it comes to us in the Eucharistic prayer, a new testament, a new covenant. A marriage relationship is a covenant. Two parties agree to something. God had established a covenant with his people. It's described in the book of Exodus, and we're going to turn there in a minute. It's called the old covenant, the old testament, if you will. Uh, testament doesn't simply refer to the first part of the Bible. It refers to the agreement, uh, the relationship that God established with his people. Now, what's interesting is that Matthew describes Jesus' words in terms of the blood of the covenant. If you look at Luke's version of the story, however, Luke tells the same story. But Luke doesn't simply say the blood of the covenant, he says the blood of the new covenant. And even though Matthew doesn't use that particular word new, that's certainly what is being implied here. Jesus is saying that there was a previous covenant that God had established with his people, but now a new covenant that supersedes that one is being established. And that's what Jesus was doing. By his death, he was establishing a new covenant, a new relationship, a new means by which people could come into fellowship with the Father. Keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 26 and turn back to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus. Not hard to find, second book of the Bible. So if you get the whole way back to the beginning, you're going to hit Genesis. Then turn to the right until you get to Exodus chapter 24. And here we have the description of the original covenant, the first covenant, the old covenant that God established with his people. And one of the things that you will notice is that it was, first and foremost, a covenant of blood. All right, it's a covenant of blood. And, and there are symbols in this, just as there are symbols in the new covenant of bread and wine. So there are symbols in this old covenant as well. So, Matthew, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 24, beginning 
at verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. So God's rules, God's laws are established. The people acknowledge that this is God's word. And then the animals are sacrificed. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Verse 7, then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood of the oxen that had been slaughtered and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The Israelites have been chosen as God's people. God spoke to them. He established a covenant with them. And the understanding is that if they keep the words of the covenant, if they keep the law of God, they will be in a relationship with him. But should they disobey that law, should they transgress, then the blood was meant to remind them that that is the payment for sin. Sin is a serious matter, ladies and gentlemen. It may not be serious to us. We talk about sin in rather simplistic and almost childish language. We've, we even make jokes about sin. We talk about things being sinfully delicious. But sin is a serious matter to God. It is actually an assault upon his character, upon his person. You'll recall that in the Garden of Eden, the real sin of Adam and Eve was not that they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The real problem for them was that they ate of that tree in order to be like God. So when God establishes his commandments, his laws, what he is basically saying to the people is you can come this far, but no further. I'm the Lord. I'm the master. You are not. And as long as you and I understand the difference between us, we can live in fellowship and in peace. But every time a person sins, what they're basically saying is, God is not going to tell me what to do. And God takes seriously the business of being God. And when we transgress, the payment for that, the assault upon God, is death. So that's what the old covenant was supposed to represent. Now, of course, the people did from time to time transgress. And that is why once a year they had the Day of Atonement. And what the priest would do is he would take the animal and he would sacrifice it. There were actually two animals, normally a lamb and a goat. And what would happen is that the people who were guilty, uh, you would bring your lamb to the priest. You would place your head on the head of the lamb, symbolic of the fact that you were transferring your guilt, your sin to this innocent creature. And then while your head hand was on the head of the lamb, the priest would come with a knife and cut the lamb's throat, and its blood would be poured out, symbolic of the fact that what was happening to this animal was what you deserved. And then there would be another animal, it was called the scapegoat, which would be sent off from the midst of the people into the wilderness, symbolizing the fact that now that sacrifice had been made, our sins were being put aside. They were being sent away. Now, the problem, of course, is that animal life is not the same as human life. And that's why these sacrifices had to be offered over and over and over again, because a human sin is not the same as an animal. Our life is not the same as an animal's life. And so year after year, thousands upon thousands of lambs and goats had to be sacrificed as a symbol of the people's sin. That's the old covenant, and it had been reenacted throughout the centuries. That's, that's what the Passover was all about. When Jesus was eating this last supper with his disciples, it was the Passover. They were getting ready to slaughter the Passover lamb. But here's what's interesting. Even while that old covenant was still being reenacted, 
and was still in force, a promise was made of a future new covenant. Turn to Jeremiah for just a moment. It's toward the end of the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 31. The prophet makes the promise that at one point in the future, God was going to set aside this old blood covenant with a new covenant. Isaiah chapter 31, beginning at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. So God is going to make a new covenant. Verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. So there is an old covenant that was established, a covenant of blood for the covering of sins, but not the washing away of sins. That's why it had to be reenacted over and over again. That blood temporarily covered. It's, it's sort of like whitewashing. You know, the old expression used to be in Charleston, as I understand it, that some people were too poor to paint, but too proud to whitewash. You can whitewash and it will cover things up, but it will only cover them up temporarily. Eventually, it begins to wear thin. And that's the way it was with the old covenant. The bloods of animals would begin to wear thin and they had to be reapplied year after year. But Jeremiah says that God has promised that one day he is going to establish a new covenant and it will be an eternal covenant. And that is exactly what Jesus' death upon the cross is meant to be for us. We say it in the Eucharistic prayer, in the communion service, we talk about a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Now think about those words. They almost are redundant. A full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, satisfaction, for the sins of the whole world, offered not annually, not year after year after year, but offered once for all time, sufficient for the sins of the whole world. That's what Jesus Christ's death was. He was the perfect Lamb of God, and his atoning sacrifice was sufficient, not just for a season, but for eternity. That's the first thing that the communion service really teaches us. A vicarious atonement, and now the establishment of a new covenant. So the relationship is restored, but it's not just that the relationship is restored, the impurity is actually washed away. So the new covenant is established, but the impurity that you and I have those defilements which we contract in the midst of our earthly life are purged and done away. Take a look again at 1 John 1.9. This is one of those passages, incidentally, 1 John 1.9, that you should highlight in your Bible, especially in, in times of guilt when you've done something you know you shouldn't do and you wonder if there's any way that God can possibly forgive you for this particular sin, 1 John 1, 9 is one of those verses that ought to be highlighted, and it really ought to be committed to memory. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's the new covenant. Jesus' death upon the cross, he is faithful, he is just to forgive us our sins, but listen to this, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Some years ago, I had a young woman that came into my office. She had um, 
come to hear the gospel and her life had been transformed and she was getting married. But she had lived, uh, to be perfectly honest with you, a somewhat notorious life. She had been what I call a serial monogamist. She had been with one man after another, after another, after another. And when the gospel finally broke through on her life and she was getting married, she was ready to settle down and commit herself to this one man. The real struggle she had, she confessed it all to her husband-to-be. He forgave her, accepted it. But her real struggle was this. She came to me wondering whether or not she could walk down the aisle in a white dress. That was her big struggle. She knew as she looked back over the course of her life, all of the terrible things that she had done, all of the things that she had engaged in. And she really wondered whether she could walk down that aisle in a veil of white, in a dress of white, a symbol of purity when her life had been anything but that. And it was my great privilege to be able to share with her the good news of what Christ has done. He has not only established a new covenant by which she can be restored to fellowship with him, but by his shed blood, she could actually be washed clean. As clean as though she had never done that. Though her sins be like crimson, they could be made as white as snow. That's why I love that wonderful hymn by William Cooper. Some people think it's rather graphic, and so they don't like to sing it in church. I think it is probably my favorite hymn of all time. I've got lots of hymns that I love. Uh, Brian McGreevy and I are always in competition about how many of the hymns that we really know. But one of my favorites is by William Cooper, and you know it. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains, they lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. That young woman had every right to walk down that aisle dressed in white because she had been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Truth be known, she probably had more right to walk down the aisle than many women who walk down the aisle who have never known Jesus Christ. So Jesus' death upon the cross and what is symbolized by the breaking of that bread and the pouring of that wine and the consuming of that wine is that you and I are washed clean. All the defilements are done away. Now here's a fourth lesson that Holy Communion teaches us, that Jesus' death is sufficient for those whom he has chosen. Now, I don't want to go into this too much because this will monopolize the rest of our time. But it is very interesting if you go back to Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, where Jesus says this, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You'll notice that he doesn't say, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for all for the forgiveness of sins. He says, for many. This is what is known as the doctrine of particular redemption. That is to say that Christ's death upon the cross is sufficient for all, absolutely. But it is efficient for those who place their trust in him. All right. Now, here's the fifth thing that I think Holy Communion teaches us. Very important. It teaches us that once we are washed in the blood of the Lamb, once we are restored to fellowship with Jesus Christ by this new covenant, once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, never needing to be sacrificed again, never needing to be reenacted again, once that takes place, then our life and our soul is secure in Christ. Salvation is not something hear me very clearly on this, salvation is not something that you and I can lose. Once you are saved, you're saved for eternity. Now, let me explain why that is the case. It's because Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no man may boast. Now, there are some Christian traditions that will tell you 
that you are saved by grace, but you can lose your salvation. I'm here to tell you that if that is what you believe, then you really don't believe you're saved by grace. Because what you're really saying is you believe you're saved by grace, but you maintain that salvation by your works. And I'm here to tell you that the salvation of Christ is from start to finish, from stem to stern, the work of God Almighty. Jesus said, I will lose no one, none that the Father has given me. No one can pluck them out of my hand. And I think that's what Jesus is saying in verse 29 when he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus establishes this new covenant, which represents his atoning vicarious sacrifice on our behalf. It symbolizes the washing away of our sins, the efficiency and the sufficiency of the sacrifice for all time. And once we are secure in that, we can look forward to that day when one day we will be gathered with all the saints around that great table at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, I want to clinch the nail on this point in particular, this, this, this message of eternal security. So I want you to keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 26. This is not on the screen. I'm just doing this off the cuff today. Go to Romans for just a moment. Go to the, to the heart of the, of the uh, epistle to the Romans, which is Romans chapter 8. And I want you to notice something. I call these the golden links of salvation, all right? The golden links of our eternal security in Christ. Here's what Paul says. You know this verse. It's my favorite verse in the Bible. And we know, verse 28, Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, that is a tremendous promise, that is a promise that for those who are in Christ Jesus, who have been washed in his blood, who have been restored to fellowship with him, all things, the disasters, the disappointments, the tragedies in your life, the good things, the bad things, even the sin can be used by God. He can redeem it for your good. Now, that's a promise for Christians only. It's not a promise for everyone, but it is a promise for Christians for we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, the question that arises is this, how do I know that? How do I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God really is going to work all things together for my good? Here's the answer, verses 29 and following. Paul writes, for those whom he foreknew, that's the first word. I call them five golden links in the chain of salvation. So if you want to know the links, write them down. The first link is foreknew. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. That's the second link. To be conformed to the image of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those he predestined, he called. That's the next link. And those he called, he justified. That's the next link. And those he justified, he glorified. That's how we know that all things work together for good. Why? Because before the foundations of the earth, God foreknew us. Which is to say he took note of us. And those he took note of, he did what? He predestined them to an end, to a purpose. And those he predestined, he what? He calls them. And those he calls, he justifies. He brings into a right relationship with him. And those he justifies, he what? He glorifies them. He transforms them into the image of his son. Now, what I want you to notice is who does the work? Who applies all the effort? You'll notice here, the way Paul describes it, it's God who foreknows. He foreknew. It's God who predestines. He also predestined. It is God who, having predestined, does what? He calls. 
He justifies. He glorifies. How much do you and I do in this process? Nothing. You and I contribute absolutely nothing to our salvation save the sin which makes it necessary. So having given your life to Christ, you can know that God, having established this new covenant, has made it possible for you to come into fellowship with Christ. You can have your sins washed away. You can be as white as snow, as innocent as a newborn babe. You can be restored to fellowship with God, and you are brought into his covenant family, and nothing, nothing in all of creation, because that's what Paul goes on to say, nothing in all of creation, neither height nor depth, neither angels nor principalities, neither things present nor things to come, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, folks, that is good news. And that's what Jesus gives us in the bread and the wine. It is a reminder to us. You know, there are times when you come forward to communion and you know you really mess up. And your heart is condemning you. And you wonder to yourself, could God ever forgive me? Can I ever go back and be something that I am not? When you take that bread, and you recall that Christ's body was broken for you. When you drink that wine and realize that Christ's blood was shed on your behalf, it is the reminder, but more than that, it is the assurance that you abide in him and he in you. And nothing in all of creation can ever separate you from his love. Now, you can get hung up on transubstantiation and consubstantiation and all of that, or you can focus on what really is the message of Jesus' death on our behalf. That's the heart of the communion service, and that is what Jesus wants us to recall. There is an exhortation in the Book of Common Prayer on page 316. We only read it once a year. We read it on Maundy Thursday when we celebrate the commemoration of the Lord's Supper. Listen to these words because they are so important. Because this service is so sacred, it is the high point of Christian worship. It is the high point of Christian worship, Holy Communion. It's one of the reasons why in, in a lot of churches, Holy Communion is the principal worship service on Sunday, because it is the high point. It is the weekly reminder on the Lord's Day, that's what Sunday is, the Lord's Day, of his sacrifice for us. Here's what this exhortation says. Listen to these words and examine your own life in the light of them. Beloved in the Lord, our Savior Christ, on the night before he suffered, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood as a sign and pledge of his love for the continual remembrance of the sacrifice of his death and for a spiritual sharing in his risen life. For in these holy mysteries, we are made one with Christ and Christ with us. We are made one body in him and members one of another. Having in mind, therefore, his great love for us, and in obedience to his command, his church renders to Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, never-ending thanks for the creation of the world, for his continual providence over us, for his love for all mankind, and for the redemption of the world by our Savior Christ, who took upon himself our flesh and humbled himself even to death on the cross, that he might make us the children of God by the power of the Holy Spirit and exalt us to everlasting life. But if we are to share rightly in the celebration of those holy mysteries and be nourished by that spiritual food, we must remember the dignity of that holy sacrament. I therefore call upon you, 
to consider how St. Paul exhorts all persons to prepare themselves carefully before eating of that bread and drinking of that cup. For as the benefit is great, if with penitent hearts and living faith we receive the holy sacrament, so is the danger great. If we receive it improperly, not recognizing the Lord's body, judge yourselves, therefore, lest you be judged by the Lord. Examine your lives and conduct by the rule of God's commandments that you may perceive wherein you have offended and what you have done or left undone, whether in thought, word, or deed. And acknowledge your sins before Almighty God with full purpose of amendment of life, being ready to make restitution for all injuries and wrongs done by you to others, and also being ready to forgive those who have offended you in order that you yourselves may be forgiven. And then, being reconciled with one another, come to the banquet of that most holy, heavenly food. Communion, my friends, is a great blessing. It is the reminder to us of Christ's blood and body given for us. And when we come forward and receive it by faith, that, that experience of being transported to that place where by faith we feed on Christ and enjoy all the benefits of his atoning sacrifice on our behalf. That's what happened that night. And it would be a continuous reminder to the disciples, and it remains a continuous disciples to his disciples, continuous reminder to his disciples even today. So this is, as I said, one of the great events sandwiched here between Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem and his ultimate sacrifice on that green hill outside the city wall. In the midst of that, Jesus gives to his disciples something tangible, a, a reminder to them, a blessing to them of a new covenant, superseding the old, a sacrifice once and for all. Now, I had prepared to go on from there, from the upper room to Gethsemane. But I realize we only have about four minutes left, so there's not a whole lot of time to go into Gethsemane. Let me just pause here and uh, see if any of you have any questions about this. You can go ahead and send the chat, and apparently chats are coming in at this point. Questions about this great institution of the Lord's Supper and the benefits of Holy Communion that are ours. Okay, so Charlene Ringer has just sent me a message. Let me see if I can pull it up. Can you explain the role of the Anglican priest in administering communion? Was the one in Genesis 14 the first? Um, I'm not quite sure, Charlene, exactly what you mean by that. Um, what we offer, of course, and I think I explained this last week, is when the priest celebrates, and we do use the word priest, incidentally, which is a little different than most Protestant traditions where they use the, per, the, the word minister or pastor, and we refer to priest. And the reason why the word priest is a little cumbersome to some people, particularly in the Protestant tradition, is because the idea of a priest is the idea of one who sacrifices. So we understand why a Roman Catholic priest is called a priest. It's because he offers the sacrifice of the mass. And every time uh, the, the host is lifted and the chalice is lifted and the bell rings, we believe that the Holy Spirit, they believe that the Holy Spirit comes down and, and Christ becomes present at that moment. And therefore, the priest is offering a sacrifice on behalf of the people. In our tradition, we speak of a sacrifice, but it is not a sacrifice that is a bloody sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice, as we say in the prayers, is once and for all. That's why we say a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. But what we do offer is a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. We do offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. So what the priest is doing is really simply being a spokesman for the people. He is not offering a bloody sacrifice necessarily. And um, our job in uh, administering Holy Communion, we, um, in our tradition, hold that lay people can 
if they're licensed by the bishop, administer the bread and the wine. But it is the sole responsibility of the priest um, as the minister of the people on God's behalf to celebrate Holy Communion. So in our tradition, lay people cannot celebrate Holy Communion, only a priest can in order for that sacrament to be recognized as legitimate. So, but a great question. I think you wrote, oh, I see here the latter part, you talked about Melchizedek. Um, Melchizedek is an interesting character in Genesis chapter 14. Um, Melchizedek is a bit of a mystery. Um, we don't know who he is. Um, he sort of appears out of nowhere. He's called a king of Salem, a king of peace, and he is referred to as a priest. Now, that's unique because the, the office in the Old Testament of king and priests were not to be combined. They were supposed to remain separate. The priests had their function, the king had their function, and the two did not come together. And yet in the Old Testament, we have this strange figure who appears out of nowhere, uh, who confronts Abraham. Abraham bows down before him, gives him homage. Abraham was the great patriarch. Uh, and the only thing we know about him is that he doesn't have a beginning and he doesn't have an end. In other words, we don't know anything about where he comes from. We don't know what happened to him after this. But he is described as a priest and a king. Jesus is described as a high priest in the order of Melchizedek because Jesus has no beginning. That, that's the great prolegomena to John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and that word became flesh. He has no beginning. He's eternal. And Jesus Christ, at his resurrection, ascends to the right hand of God the Father. He has no end. And in the person of Jesus Christ, for the first time, there is reunited these two offices. Jesus Christ is the priest who offers the ultimate sacrifice for us, but he is also the king of heaven. So that is why Jesus is described as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Anglican priests are not priests in the order of Melchizedek. We, do, we have a beginning and we have an end. And furthermore, we're not like priests in the Old Testaments. We're not priests after the style of Aaron because they offered a sacrifice, a literal sacrifice. What we offer is ourselves a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving in gratitude for the great sacrifice made on our behalf by him who is both priest and victim. That's another unique feature of Jesus Christ's ministry. He is the priest who offers the sacrifice, and yet he is the victim. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So there's the distinction, I think. Anything else? I've got, I've got a couple other here. Martha Vetter. All right. So you have spoken about both the authority and sufficiency of the Bible. If I were serving as an open door ministry docent, how can I explain the authority of the Bible to the people who are visiting and have questions? Thank you. Okay. Well, it depends upon how much time you have. Um, I would say, and you've heard me say this before, I think that's the real issue for many people today. The real issue that we face as Christians in this 21st century world you know, things, debates about sexuality, debates about, you know, right to life, all of these things that are big political issues as well as moral issues today. I say that those things are really symptoms of a much deeper problem. The real issue for us as Christians is what is the authority for the life of the church? Everybody lives under authority. Uh, I'll tell you a story. Back during the American Revolution, uh, there was a battle to seize a fort called Fort Ticonderoga. And um, the two men who were in charge of the, the colonists who were attacking the fort and trying to seize it from the British was an American general, later became a turncoat, by the name of Ethan Allen. Um, not Ethan Allen, but, um, well, Ethan Allen was the colonel who was in charge, and uh, the traitor was Benedict Arnold. So you know those two figures. Um, Ethan Allen, not the person who made, you know, the furniture. But Ethan Allen, the, the colonist, the, the colonel of the, of the Continental Militia. These two men attacked Fort Ticonderoga. Ethan Allen was kind of a um, hardcore kind of individuals. He was rough around the edges. The story goes that he led the little um, sortie that got into the fort 
Uh, the fort was commanded by a British officer by the name of uh, Captain Delaplace. They went across the parade ground, they took out all of the guards, and they immediately went up to the officer's headquarters. Colonel Delaplace was asleep. He wasn't even awake at the time. He was fast asleep. It was about two o'clock in the morning. Ethan Allen goes up banging on the door. Delaplace comes out clothed, the story goes, in nothing but his modesty. And all he can see in the dim light is a bunch of armed men. And Ethan Allen says to him, I demand the surrender of this fort, at which Delaplace replies, by whose authority? And Ethan Allen gets a twinkle in his eye and he replies, by whose authority? I'll tell you by whose authority, by the authority of the great God Jehovah and the Continental Congress. Now, what he was saying was, there has to be authority. Delaplace was not going to give up the fort without somebody's legitimate authority. And Ethan Allen was saying, I'll tell you by whose authority I act. Every single person in the world operates under some kind of authority. Nobody escapes authority. The only question is, what is the authority for your life? For us as Christians, we believe that the authority for us and for the church is the authority of Holy Scripture. Now, how do you explain all of that to people who are there, the authority and the sufficiency of the Scriptures? That's going to take some time. But one of the things that I tell people is, why don't you give it a try? Why don't you come and see whether the scripture really speaks to you, whether God really speaks to you? This is one of the things that we have to understand in the 21st century. We are not living in a Christian culture. If you think you are living in a Christian American, you need to dismiss that idea from your mind immediately. We are not living in a Christian culture anymore or in a Christian country. There is a sense in which we were never a Christian country. Christianity was never the established religion of people in America. Now, it is true many of the founding fathers were Christians, and they subscribed to a Judeo-Christian morality, but we never had a state religion. We never did. There is a sense in which we've never been a Christian nation. We've been living off of the fumes of a Judeo-Christian morality. So to say, as some people like to say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Well, God said it. You may believe it, but that by no means settles it. What you have to be able to do is to give a reason for the hope that is within you. The best thing you can do to defend the scripture is tell people your story, how it is that the God of the Bible came and transformed your life, made a difference in you. Share with them your faith. They can always say, well, I don't believe the Bible is the word of God. They cannot tell you. They cannot say to you. They may have doubts, but they cannot say to you, God didn't do that with you. It is your story, and it is yours alone to proclaim, and that may be the most powerful thing in the world. For some people, the only Bible they will ever encounter is the life of individual Christians. Okay, last one, and this is from Elizabeth Scott. Uh, she says, I do believe that no one knows another's hearts. How do you encourage someone who has a family member, once a professing believer, who has seemingly turned their back on God and family and the church and has allowed bitterness to consume? I do believe once saved, always saved. They are not so sure. Your words are reassuring. Yes, um, I would say a couple of things to you. First of all, I would say this. Um, I do believe that when a person comes into fellowship with Jesus Christ, no one can pluck them out of Christ's hand. I, I absolutely believe that. What happens when you see somebody who at one point professed a faith, but then denies that faith at some later point? One of two things is happening there. Either there is a temporary falling away, and from time to time tragedies happen in people's life, and they become angry with God, and they turn their back on God, but in the end they return. We sometimes refer to it as backsliding. Either that is what is taking place there, or it may very well be that that person never really was saved to begin with. Now, Jesus told a parable about this. It was the parable of the sower. I sometimes refer to it as the parable of the four soils, because you'll recall that the focus is not so much on the ability of the sower or even the power of the seed, but on the fertile nature of the soil. And Jesus refers to one of those soils as rocky soil. He said, some of the seed fell on rocky soil 
and it grew up quickly. We know people like this. They come into the church, they initially hear the message, they get excited about it, but Jesus said when the sun comes out, they become scorched because they have no depth, they have no root. The roots were never put down. So it is possible with someone that they never actually had the roots. They gave an appearance, an initial appearance of excitement, even a profession of faith. They walked down the aisle when the altar call was given or whatever it is, but they never actually put down roots. There was no depth there. They may have said the words, but never meant them in the heart. On the other hand, there are those who do and sometimes fall away. I've seen this with young people in particular. They've made a confession of their sins. They get off to college, they get off to university, whatever it is, and they have a tendency to fall away. One of the promises that we have in the Bible, as far as children is concerned, is raise up a child in the way that they should go, and when they were old, they will not depart from it. It never says they will not depart from it. It says when they are old, they will not depart from it. So it's perfectly possible that somebody, particularly a young person, will drift away for a time. But if they are truly in Christ, the promise is that he who started the good work in you will bring it to completion. So at the very least, we should never lose heart. We should always be encouraged. And if you don't know what to do, and you feel that your words are always a source of irritation, then perhaps the best thing that you can do, and we've all been there, let me tell you something, we've all had family members where we're trying to tell them to get on the right path, and they don't want to hear it, and they'll say, don't preach. My kids would sometimes say to me, dad, preach from the pulpit, don't preach at me. Um, sometimes the best thing you can do is just pray for them. And I say just pray for them, but as we're going to see in our next study, when we look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Prayer is a mighty and important thing. What was Jesus doing in his time of crisis? What was Jesus doing in those hours before he was to be crucified? Jesus was spending that time in prayer with the Father. And from it, he gained strength. We're told that angels came and ministered to him as a consequence. And the same can be true for us. So never lose heart. Be encouraged and persevere in prayer, especially for those you love. Well, thank you. We, we covered a lot of ground today, and you've been very gracious in letting me talk on till past one o'clock. God bless you. Uh, next week, when we come together, we're going to take a look at Jesus' time in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, this has been described by some biblical scholars as the Holy of Holies. We see a picture of Jesus, the like of which we have never seen anywhere else in the Gospels. And we'll take an examination of that next week. God bless you. Let's close with a word of prayer and to have a wonderful week. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word. We thank you for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. It's the means by which you speak to us and apply these truths to our hearts. Grant us courage and strength and confidence to live in you, knowing that you have broken your body for us, poured out your blood for us, that we, trusting in you, might live forever trusting that nothing, neither height nor depth, neither angels nor principalities, nothing in all of creation can ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.